I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City, and today I am joined by Daniel Harrigus, senior editor for Strong Towns. Daniel, welcome back to Upzoned. Thanks, Abby. So the article that we are going to be talking about today uh, is actually local to Kansas City. It was published in KSHB Kansas City by Zhu Yun Kim, and it is entitled Casey Parks and Rec Shuts Down Several Fountains Early Due to High Water Bill. So if you've ever been to Kansas City or have any awareness about Kansas City, you may have heard it called the Paris of the Plains or the City of Fountains. Um, This is kind of a big piece of civic pride that a lot of people associate the city with is their fountains. However, recently, the Kansas City Parks and Recreation Department was forced to shut down its 48 fountains, citing unmanageable operating costs. So this leaves a lot of residents kind of up in arms claiming that the out-of-operation fountains are attracting vandalism and causing all kinds of issues for their neighborhoods. And unfortunately, Parks and Rec basically has its hands tied as the city has gone over its water budget for the year and they can't afford to keep fountains running. So I actually wanted to kind of partner this with a ULI or Urban Land Institute article that was produced a couple of years ago in Kansas City that talked about this issue of the park system, the history of the park system, the costs, the deferred maintenance issues, because I think that this is kind of one outcome of that deferred maintenance issue that has been identified. I would imagine that a lot of cities face these same kinds of issues. And I find this topic of parks to be kind of a a nice layer to the overall infrastructure and deferred maintenance story that Strong Towns talks about. Park facilities are not exactly, you know, critical infrastructure in the way, you know, like streets or sewers, but they are kind of a critical piece of sustaining communities that are actually worth living in. And they are also a very large public expense with multiple line items on a municipal budget. So like streets, parks are these public spaces that really define the structure and design of a city. They're critically important. They're expensive. And we're seeing here in Kansas City a situation where they're unable to to operate their fountains and to continue to sustain things to the quality that was probably expected when these things were originally built. So, you know, Daniel, I'm curious if parks is a topic that Strong Towns has done a lot of thinking in. Do you see it as like, quote unquote, infrastructure in the way that that we would look at streets and sewers and water lines? I think in a sense, absolutely, yes. Um, you can you can get broader or more narrow with the, the term infrastructure, and um, the whole nation got to sort of have that debate ad nauseum um, during, the, during the congressional debates over the infrastructure bill. But without sort of rehashing that, parks are, I think you phrased it really well, you know, they're 
they're part of the skeleton of the city. They're part of the structure of the community. They are often the anchor of a neighborhood or of a corridor. They are clearly a huge contributor to the value and livability of a place. At the same time, like other infrastructure, you know, like the streets themselves, we have to recognize that on a city's balance sheet, they are they're expensive and they are they are expenses. They are not simply assets. Um, yeah. A, a park is an ongoing liability and there are consequences to failing to keep up with maintenance and even failing to keep up with the little things. And if you're doing that right, if you are obsessing over routine maintenance, obviously the park is real estate that is, you know, not on the tax rolls. It's not generating any direct value for the city. What it is doing is it is uplifting the value of all of the adjoining private real estate, um, sometimes in a really profound way. I mean, think about the island of Manhattan as sort of the extreme canonical example here. Central Park, you can just look at a satellite photo. Central Park occupies an enormous chunk of that island. But I would bet you anything that if Central Park disappeared, the total value of real estate in Manhattan would go down, not up. Like if you if you sold it off to developers, I, I think that it is a tremendous, like it is the anchor that supports private wealth around it. You can push back against that if you want. And I'm not trying to make a rigorous <laughs> new argument here just to make a point about the importance of parks to the sustenance of private wealth in our communities. So... The way that we talk about it a lot within our studio and specifically my colleague Robert Whitman often talks about not just parks, but streets, uh, public spaces generally as value beacons, you know, their expenses, public spaces, open spaces, they, they have a maintenance item associated with them, a cost associated with them. But they also influence the land use and the investments around them. So public spaces, including parks, can significantly degrade value or they can promote investment. You think of areas that are next to highways that have been driven through the city, you know, that's degrading the value of everything around it. You probably don't have amazing uh, development and beautiful buildings that have been recently invested around those kinds of areas um, because it's not a place you want to be. But if you have a place like Central Park, people are going to be competing to be as close to an amazing place like that as possible. So, you know, I think that that's one way of looking at it. I think the other way of looking at it is that in the long run, Having great parks in public spaces are, it's not just a value beacon, but it's giving off a signal of value. When you have great streets, when you have great plazas, great parks, it says that this is a valuable place, an important place, and a place that produces enough value to reinvest in ourselves. So in Kansas City, you know, in these places that have fountains, that's what that is essentially saying we have this big, beautiful fountain in this prominent civic place. And it's because this is an important place and we have the kind of community wealth that enables us to invest in ourselves. I mean, that to me, that is what great public spaces kind of signal. And, you know, if you think about it back, back when these fountains were first established, it probably was a place where the community had enough collective wealth to invest in itself. 
But the thing that has changed in Kansas City over time is really the efficiencies of the land use. Kansas City has been established around this like sweeping parkway and boulevard system. Um, Casey Parks is responsible for maintaining that system. It's 135 miles of parkways and boulevards bordered by really large expanses of open space that needs to be mowed on a regular basis and trees that need to be maintained. Um, and, and that's just kind of one thing that they're responsible for operating. And Kansas City has continued to expand uh, the, this kind of area and their land mass over the years. Back in 1950, they were 81 square miles, half a million people. Now we're for four times as big, but we have about half a million people. So we just don't have the same kinds of efficiencies that we had when all of these parks were first established and all these fountains were put in. When you spread things out, you know, you, your infrastructure liabilities go up, your park liabilities go up, but you don't, you aren't necessarily bringing in more value and more efficiency, um, which to me, I think is a key problem here. Yeah. Um, you know, there needs to be, for a financially resilient community in the long run, you need to have some sort of like a concordance between private wealth and public investment. And if you're going to have a real show showpiece park system, you're going to have fountains, you're going to have grand boulevards, which Kansas City is, is, has been known for for a century, then what you need to do in terms of kind of city planning and envisioning your, your development is, okay, take the land that is near those parks where they where you're getting a value boost from the presence of that public investment and you need to allow a lot of private wealth to concentrate on that land you need to allow a more intense development pattern you need to allow and encourage private investment that is going to support the public investment over the long haul um, and what Kansas City has done is it has really thinned out its development pattern and a lot of the the historic core of the city is now frozen as i understand it in a much less productive development pattern than was the trajectory prior to the suburban era. I'm curious, you, you know, you talked about this ULI report that goes in much more depth about the city's park system. Do you have the sense that this issue with the fountains is, you know, a one-off or is it really symptomatic of a much deeper problem in Kansas City? Well, I, I would hope that it would be a one-off, but I don't really believe it is. This is one of those things where, you know, before we started, we were kind of talking about the issue of soft default and these outcomes that just kind of happen because of inability to maintain systems and to the quality that was expected before. You know, my concern is that this is one symptom of this overall insolvency issue that Kansas City is facing, that lots of other cities are facing, and that really Kansas City is going to need to get really strategic, not just in general, but about how parks are maintained and how the operations work in order to continue to, uh, you know, sustain what what is needed to be sustained and, you know, potentially offload uh, things that are not as valuable. I know that the park system as a whole has been kind of slowly dis decommissioning spaces that are not really valuable as parks, which I think is, I think that's one of the kind of key issues here, because like I was saying, there's a lot of like 
sweeping parkways and boulevards, very expensive to maintain. There's also a lot of kind of extra spaces uh, that are technically parks, and it's questionable as to whether they're actually being utilized as parks or if they ever were utilized as parks. So I've seen a little bit of that kind of repositioning of land, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I I would hope that it's a one-off thing, but I deep down really don't believe that that's the case. I think that it's just one symptom of the overall issue. Yeah, the, the kind of repositioning you're talking about um, sounds to me like kind of a triage process of, okay, what, let's look at all these resources in our park system and like which are the ones that are actually really really vital and which are the ones that are maybe pieces of land you know i almost think of the the distinction between a park versus open space or green space or these things that have really come to pervade planning documents where no one is what that what that the signal that sends to me you know when i see a planning document or something in a zoning code refer to open space it's telling me that no one has really put the deep thought into what is the purpose of this space? What is its wealth generating function for the community? Um, it's just like, let's, let's set aside some grass and. Yeah. If there's some floodplain yeah. that's left extra on the subdivision project, we just won't touch it. And then there's your open space that the neighborhood gets to use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Kansas city has a history of that, but Kansas city also has this really spectacular history in its, city beautiful heyday of really thoughtful planning with regard to how parks and boulevards were going to form the skeleton of the whole community. So um, there's a legacy to draw on, but it's a legacy to to be very deliberate about trying to protect. I, I agree with that. And as I was thinking through this, I was thinking, you know, about how how expensive kind of the overall parkway and boulevard system is, but also how important it is to Kansas City's urban design framework, what makes it, you know, like a Kessler planned city. Uh, it, I mean, the parkways and boulevards, uh, many of them have been unfortunately degraded over the years and turned into strodes. But the ones that you know, haven't are some of the most valuable, most beautiful value beacons in the city, great streets. I think it's worth understanding what it takes to sustain a great street, sustain a great park. And it's about fundamentally efficiencies and development pattern. I I think that that's something that I hope in kind of the overall conversation in Kansas City, as well as other places that is not lost because just like parks are, or I'm sorry, fountains are expensive to maintain. So are these parks and boulevards. So are buildings and all the other things that cities are trying to take care of. And in order to have amenities like this, we need to be very deliberate, not just about our land use pattern and how we're actually generating revenue as a community in a, in a concentrated way and an efficient way but also how we are ultimately spending that money and whether it's producing more value than liabilities. I think that's very important. And it's something that, you know, I'm sure gets lost in the overall, you know, city management process. You have all these different departments, uh, maybe they're working in silos and they're, they're just trying to get, get their heads around one, one piece of the city, parks and rec, public works, 
you know, city planning. And it's, I think, really important to think about these kinds of things comprehensively uh, together because fundamentally that's that they all operate as uh, as a budget and they create value, they create liabilities. And parks are something that I would say that it's different in streets in the way that people notice when their parks are not being maintained to the quality that is expected people get really upset and maybe it's just Kansas City i suspect it's not but people notice in a way that you kind of have a tolerance for ignoring uh, a pothole in the road or a street light not quite working it's like there's a level of tolerance that people have for various different types of infrastructure but when it comes to parks it's almost like it's personal people love their parks there is a civic pride element to that and once you start to see the degradation of parks i think that is going to be something that people maybe feel strong more strongly about than they might feel about potholes or you know streets and you know kind of the quote unquote boring pieces of infrastructure i completely agree with that and you can see that come through even in the article you shared with me about the fountains you can see the sense among residents that civic pride is at stake, that, you know, as soon as the fountains are off, there are concerns about vandalism because it sends a signal that the space is being devalued. They quoted a resident saying um, kind of with, you know, indignation, we're not a second class neighborhood, you know, that why are you, why are you going to treat us this way? Why aren't you going to respect the people who have made their lives in this place and keep up the park? It's really, it's painful for people to see, to see the quality of public spaces degrade, the quality of services degrade, and to not really understand why other than, well, they said they, they don't have the budget for it, but um, year after year or decade after decade. Um, and that's a process that, you know, you used the term a few minutes ago, Abby, soft default. Um, I'd love to kind of revisit that because that's a bit of a strong towns insider term, but it's a really, really important yeah, please do. Yeah. Please explain um, that because I I don't think I explained that well, but you brought it up and I think it's a really smart way of looking at this as outcomes. Yeah, I, I give full credit to Chuck Marone for this term, but, um, you know, we get a common source of pushback against the Strong Towns observation that the prevailing development pattern of North American cities is insolvent. And a lot of our critics will say, well, no, that's obviously, that's garbage because we don't see thousands of cities declaring bankruptcy. And there's sort of this vision of, well, here's the apocalyptic crisis that's going to befall us when everything comes crashing down. And that's not how it goes in real life. How it goes is you have a thousand little canaries in the coal mine. And that's how I might view this fountain issue. You know, fountains aren't crucial to the quality of life of Kansas Cityans. But when they can't keep the fountains running, I mean, there's a pride issue there, but it's also a canary in the coal mine saying that you're going to have bigger problems and more substantial problems to come. Um, and so soft default is this term to communicate that like a, a municipal government isn't necessarily defaulting on its debts. It's not declaring bankruptcy in court. Um, as a general rule, with very few exceptions, we don't allow cities to get to that point. We bail them out. We allow them to take on more debt. We allow them to kick the can down the road in a bunch of different ways. 
So long before you get to the point of a Detroit or a Stockton actually declaring bankruptcy, what you what you are is you are a city like Kansas City or hundreds of other cities around the country making choices to not maintain certain things as well, to defer maintenance, to cut services, to cut back public libraries, you know, parks. Yeah, it's a process of triage. A process of triage to pave the streets that are in the direst condition, but to accept that you're going to have potholes on 10 times as many other streets that aren't going to get any attention. And residents can come to be sort of inured to this over time until you go to like, you know, the brand new suburb that is still in the first life cycle of the growth Ponzi scheme and everything is shiny and new and pristine. And some, some people are going to look at that and say, well, obviously these, you know, these brand new suburbs are just better managed. They're not corrupt like the inner city. They're not. (laughs) They have um, it together here. They've got their act together and this is good government. And um, you've got a different set of people who will look at the same phenomenon and say, this is all just institutional. It's racism. It's classism. It's cities not caring about their poor residents. The reality is there's a deeper underlying structural issue than either of those narratives. And that is we have a development pattern that is insolvent. Our our wealth is spread too thin. We are spread too thin on the land and our liabilities are too great because of that. And there's a mismatch. And the way that mismatch manifests is not with a city being financially healthy, 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 and then suddenly bankrupt. The way it manifests is decades worth of small indignities, service cutbacks. The fountain's not on at the park anymore. The The public restroom is in poor condition the steps at the park are crumbling and are hazardous to walk on. Um, you've got potholes on your streets. You've got more and more, you know, where I live in Florida, the big story is um, sewer leaks. We have pipes rupturing, um, wastewater discharges into the Bay are kind of like, it's a monthly occurrence now in our local newspapers, like 350,000 gallons of sewage spilled into Sarasota Bay. And what that is, is a form of soft default. We have aging infrastructure. There's a lot of deferred maintenance. We can't keep up with it anymore. And people get used to these stories, but it deals a blow to civic pride. And ultimately, it can push a place in the worst case scenario into a downward spiral where the quality of life deteriorates and well-to-do residents who can afford to leave and move somewhere else do so. And you get, you know, that delivers a hit to the tax base. That makes the situation even worse. Um so that that's what Chuck means when he says we are all Detroit. We're all kind of different stages of Detroit. But the insolvency problem is really, really pervasive in a lot of places that aren't infamously basket cases. Like Kansas City has a bunch of recent successes to tout on the national stage, and they, they do tout. They've got new businesses. They've got new investment. They've got a streetcar. They've got all this, st- like hey, look at us, we're doing great. And there's kind of a booster narrative that has some truth to it. But at the same time, here's this canary in the coal mine. We can't yeah. pay the bill. And, and if you think geographically about kind of the booster narratives, a, a lot of those narratives are coming from very specific and valuable places within the metro, right? I mean, downtown area and the stadiums and you know places that... Uh, people have a lot, of, a lot of civic pride in, but are also highly productive uh, in, in terms of spatial revenue. And so I think that that is 
an important layer to put on top of that and to, you know, zoom out and understand that there's a lot of city that Kansas City, that other municipalities in the region are responsible for taking care of. And it, it ultimately, you know, insolvency, it's an inefficiency problem. We just don't have the efficiencies that are needed to maintain everything we've built. And, you know, you would you would love to think that when triage is the approach to addressing these issues, that there would be some kind of really data-driven way of, um, you know, understanding the where you're going to get the most value out of your investments. It's often not the most wealthy neighborhoods. A lot of the times it's, you know, the urban core and, and you know, you have a lot of efficiencies that are built into that development pattern. And, I, you know, my worry is that you overlay politics on top of these triage situations and, um, you know, the places that may get their fountains turned on may not be the places with a very productive pattern of development. So, you know, which further puts you down into the hole and doesn't actually, you know, address these issues of efficiency. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a really powerful observation that when you overlay politics, on this process of triage, you're going to tend to not make the decisions that are actually sustaining the long-term financial resilience and the long-term productivity of your community. Um, you know, resources will go to favored or politically connected populations, but not necessarily to the places where the return on investment is great, because that is, as we've shown on Strong Towns a bunch of times, as our friends at Urban 3 have documented really rigorously with data, the most productive places in your city are often not the wealthiest. We need to obsessively do the math. We need to figure out where is where is the productivity in our city? Where is concentrated wealth being generated? Where is the upside potential? And then pair that with which public investments are truly essential? Which parks can we not allow to deteriorate? Or features of the parks? Or which aspects of public services um, do we need to obsess about maintaining and keeping up to a standard because they are actually generating a return for our community? Yeah. Those are difficult questions. It's, it's difficult questions and it's, it's difficult, I think, for, you know, a politician or someone managing a city to actually bring forth because it undermines the interests of a lot of people who are much more connected than like the majority of the city. And so I think, I, I think it's interesting to think about how those layers work, but uh, uh, you know, I'm hoping in Kansas city, we can help contribute to trying to have a more reasonable discussion about efficiencies and how, how you manage these kinds of issues. It's I'm, I bet every city is going to have these same kinds of challenges because inherently uh, you know, running a city is a political process. You just can't separate the two things. I wish you could, but you really can't. Well, well, let's end it there on a super positive note. <laughs> um, and we will go into the down zone. Uh, so this is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been watching, reading, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. So Daniel, I will throw it back to you. 
Um, we are on the verge of fall here in Florida. Um, and fall here in Florida is something you that <laughs> those of you north of about the 37th parallel would, would recognize as summer. <laughs> fall here it's in the 80s and it's not so humid anymore and it's not raining every single afternoon. So I'm very excited about fall because fall is like, um, you know, July in Minnesota where I grew up. Um, but I, with fall comes uh, planting season, which is totally upside down from most of the continent. So um I am planning my vegetable garden because this is the best time of year to get things in the ground um, here in South Florida. And um, I, I, I don't have high hopes for actually harvesting much because I learned last year I planted tomatoes and I have a toddler and my toddler discovered that she could pick the green ones. And my toddler was not so capable of comprehending that she could wait and then pick red <laughs> ones. And that was beyond her... Um, <laughs> Maybe a couple, couple of couple of years. So, so um, she picked a lot of green tomatoes, and they were great playthings in her toy kitchen for several months. But I think I ate all of like four red tomatoes all season. So oh, um, bummer. This will we probably have, be similar, but it'll still be a fun thing to do with her and just to get outside. So we had a bad year for tomatoes. I I thought it was just me at first, um, but then I read somewhere that it was a you know, regional issue that everybody's tomatoes were bad, which made me feel a lot better. I didn't put that much effort into my garden this year. Um, at least not the, the, not the same level of effort that I had been in the past, but I was feeling bad because my tomatoes were just, there were not that many of them. And most of them kind of stayed green and weren't, weren't really that good looking. And I planted various different varieties. So it's it's cool that now you guys are just getting started, so you can enjoy uh, gardening throughout. I'm guessing throughout the winter. How long do you? Yeah, winter. Yeah. Um, our farmers markets here run from October to May, and they mm -hmm. all shut down in the summer. And oh yeah, because it's too hot in the summer, but also because it's too hot to grow a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I've got so many plants in my garden just like wither up in the summer sun. If I go one day without watering them enough. They're doomed. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> well, uh, you know, here here in the north, uh, our summer is officially winding down. Yesterday was actually like the first day of, I think, real fall. I don't know if it's false fall. I think it's real this time. Um, we've started to drop into, you know, the range of 50 to 70s. And so I'm excited about that. I actually went to the movies last weekend when it was like really hot and I uh, saw a scary movie that was out. Do you like scary movies? <laughs> I watch a lot of them because my wife likes them. So I don't Okay. I, we've probably talked about this before. I, I don't see them out. Anyway, what did you see? Um, so I actually went and saw a movie called Barbarian, which is really I, I'm not going to say that much about it because it's kind of a movie that you want to go into completely blind. It was, I think, one of my favorite horror movies I've ever seen. It was certainly one of the most creative scary movies I've ever seen. It was like, I can't remember who produced it and wrote it, but it was just like bonkers weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just essentially you know, a girl goes to an Airbnb and somebody else is staying there and it, it goes into this whole storyline that is completely unexpected. You know, when you think it, it kind of avoids all the different horror tropes of like, 
you think something's going to happen, you think you can predict it, and then something completely different happens in the storyline, which I appreciated. And it was actually, um, it was like half comedy. So people were actually laughing out loud in the theaters. And I don't know, I guess I I forgot how fun it is to actually go to a movie theater because people were like yelling at the screen and laughing and like screaming. It was just really fun. So I think I'm going to start going to see more movies because I had a great time. I have not gone to a movie in a theater since before COVID. Um, you should give I, it yeah, a shot. It's experience. Yeah, you should give it a shot. It's uh, it's a new era for movies. That's right. what I'm telling myself. <laughs> well, let's end it there. Thanks again, Daniel, for joining me today. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Abby. Bye. Get down tonight.